You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Good morning. That's a pretty hearty morning. Met a lot of new folks today, so welcome guests especially. Family members have some folks in from uh, the Phoenix area. Nice place to be traveling to. They pull out uh, after worship for some warmth and sunshine. We had a uh, group come in today without coats. And I scolded them, sitting right over there. They're young, like 24, 25, right? Just haven't learned that it's winter and you wear coats in the winter. So aren't you glad you got a pastor who reproves, rebukes, all that kind of good stuff. They won't be here for the next uh, few weeks. Yeah, way to go, Pastor. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Very familiar passage, but we're going to take a different angle on it this morning. We're in a mini-series for Christmas, and the title of the series is Give This Christmas Away. In the first few weeks, we looked at what we could give to God And um, today adds to that. It's really the culmination of our giving to him. And then on the 26th, we're going to focus on his greatest gift to us. And I would contend it is grace. It is salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. The 26th, just so you know, will be a family service, but we will uh, be very deliberate Uh, this coming week, Christmas Eve, Eve, and the 26th to share the gospel, a clear presentation so people have the privilege to embrace Jesus by faith through grace. And so many years ago, I cut my teeth in ministry as a youth slash associate pastor. And one of the roles that I I had was life groups. Uh, It wasn't called that back then because life groups really didn't exist. It was kind of brand new. How do we do community? How do we uh, do life on life? And so I had the privilege to kind of learn a lot about that uh, ministry of life group and cell group and small group. I found myself uh, studying a lot, reading a lot, again, because it was kind of brand new to the church. We're talking 40 years ago. And I went to a seminar in Chicago. And I sat under the tutelage of a gentleman, you might know this name, his name is Lee Strobel. Do you know Lee Strobel? Quite a remarkable man. This is 40 years ago, and of course Lee's journey has really uh, taken off. Uh, The seminar was incredible, learned a lot. However, what was most remarkable about that time in Chicago was Lee's backstory. Let me tell you his backstory. Lee is working as a journalist at the Chicago Tribune at the top of his game. He was really doing well. And um, his wife started attending a church in Chicago and became a Christian. That created all kinds of tension in the marriage and in the home. And he was frustrated, really frustrated. And so he spoke to one of his mentors, who was very much like Lee, a devout atheist. And so his mentor said, well, Lee, just go after one of the tenets of the Christian faith, one of the primary tenets. And so what did Lee do? He spent a year and a half looking into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as a journalist, his goal was to disprove that basic tenet of the Christian faith. Do you know what happened to Lee? 
after a year and a half of global research, diving in as a journalist, he came to believe that Jesus Christ not only lived and died, was buried, but rose from the grave. He put his faith and trust in Christ. In 2017, his story was told in a movie, Case for Christ, and it is a powerful, powerful movie. But what I think is unique about Lee's story is this. Lee's not an anomaly. There are many people from all walks of life who doubt the basic tenets of the historical Christian faith. That Jesus lived, that he taught, he healed, he blessed, that he died, he rose from the grave. And so uh, doubt comes in all kinds of uh, shapes and forms. And what I thought before we dove into our passage this morning is try to examine the issue of doubt and where it comes from and maybe how it relates to you and potentially to people that you love, care for, are ministering to. If you have your Connect card, I've listed seven. This isn't exhaustive, but these are the seven that I interacted with uh, this week. I think it'll be pretty revealing, but I really would like to ask you to open your hearts and see if you can see yourself in any of these doubts. The first one I would call the natural doubter. What is the natural doubter? This is the individual who's kind of born with a predisposition to doubt. They are innately skeptical. Maybe an individual in the Bible like Thomas. Remember, Jesus Christ rose from the grave and, and his disciples, his friends say, hey, you know, and what does Thomas say? Unless I see, unless I touch, Unless I feel, unless I have empirical data, count me out. I'm not going to believe. Maybe Thomas had a bent towards a natural doubt. The second group I would call seasonal doubters. And folks, I saw this a lot in youth ministry. Youth, please listen to me here. And thank you again for always sitting up front, for engaging. I had a student come to me today. He says, Pastor Keith, you got a pen? He's got his Connect card ready to take notes. I says, I don't, but I'm going to get you one. And we got him a pen. Engaging. Seasonal doubters are this, and as a former youth pastor, 15 years, I saw a lot of kids just really engaged in high school. What happens? They go off to university, and of course, the Ivy League thinkers try to create as much doubt as possible. And some of those students wavered during the season of university and college, and they have to think through their faith. The third group I would call intellectual doubters. Now, again, this isn't negative, this isn't derogatory, but there are some people who think a bit deeper than others. Would you agree? I had a nine-year-old a few weeks ago come to me, and he had talked to his folks, wanted to talk to Pastor Keith about some of the things he's been thinking about. So we met out in the foyer before service. He says, Pastor Keith, where did God come from? He's like, that's a good question. Ask Pastor Jason, <laughs> you know, he'll tell you. No, but there's intellectual doubters. You know the name C.S. Lewis, right? Chronicles of Narnia, remember him? I mean, beautiful man, but a thinker. I read some of this guy's stuff, and I reread some of this guy's stuff, and I'm like, okay, maybe I'll read something a little lighter. God has blessed individuals with the ability to think, and what a privilege to think. The proverb says, as an individual thinks, so they'll live. So we don't think negatively about the intellectual, but they need more information. 
Here's one that saddens me. I call it the convenient doubter. Please listen to me, folks, because I hear this all the time, especially from the age group around uh, mid-20s to mid-30s. And the constant refrain I hear in our culture today is, there's so much noise. Who do you believe? And they don't know where to discover truth. And so what they do is they just throw their hands up and say, count me out, man. I'm just going to do my own thing. And so we give up the pursuit of truth because there's so much noise around us. I call that convenient. Don't do that, please. Yeah, there's a lot of noise. You got to sort through it. But let's find true truth as Francis Safer encourages us. The fifth category, I would say, is the disappointed doubters. And here is the doubters that I think go back to individuals like Job. When you read the book of Job, which is quite a treatise, 42 chapters, he has a statement there. He says, Lord, you created me. Now you're going to crush me? Way to go, God. You made something special out of me. Now you're destroying my life. That's how Job felt. And he was disappointed with God. He didn't shake his fist at God. That's different. We'll get to that. But he was broken because of the pain and suffering he experienced in his family, among his friends, and so forth. Six, the wounded doubters. And folks, here's a group that I have deep compassion for. Because this group, to me, are the individuals who were once in the church, who seemed to be walking by faith and not by sight, had a love relationship with God, but something happened. There was hurt, there was pain, maybe a church split, there was stuff in the church, right? Would you agree sometimes church gets messy? Has that ever happened? Read the Bible. It's in the Bible. Read Corinthians. It's in Corinthians. And yet it's too messy, and they drift. And boy, it, it really saddens me, and they live wounded. And we have a ministry, I believe, to people who've just distanced themselves because of the wounds, because God wants to heal the broken heart, set the captive free. And the final group is a rebellious daughter. And yes, there are folks like this. You know where I put Lee Strobel's initially? I would put him in the category of intellectual doubter. Why? He's a journalist. He's a thinker. He's a brilliant man. But he was a devout atheist, all in. There's no question about that. But also, because of what happened to his wife, became a Christian, saw the change. He was an angry intellectual. And so we went after the tenets of the Christian faith as an antagonist to disprove it. And yet God showed up and he came to genuine faith in Christ. Two questions for you. Number one, do you see yourself in any of these categories? Maybe even a hybrid of those? And folks, we're going to discover this morning it's okay to doubt. God doesn't want you to stay there but he'll meet you there so you can move forward in your faith journey. Now, here's the other encouragement. The reason I spend time going through that list is there's people in your life and mine that fit into some of those categories. I think we have to be prayerfully discerning as we try to share the love and message of Christmas with them and be sensitive to them. Again, I've shared with you one of the groups that I'm so broken for, those who have just, just been so disappointed with the church that they've drifted and said, you know, if that's how it is, I'm done. I want to warm and welcome them back into this fold. And so now to our passage, stand with me if you would. I'd like to stand in reverence of God's word. Matthew chapter one. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please follow along on the screen. Matthew writes, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. 
After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as a wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And he's going back now to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. See, the virgin will become pregnant, give birth to a son. They will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Please be seated. One of the things that I truly love about the Bible, the Word of God, is its honesty and its transparency. Do you see how candid Scripture is? Joseph, we kind of view as a spiritual titan, right? Wow, God chose Mary and Joseph, and man, they're going to give birth to the Messiah. How does Joseph respond to this whole intervention by God? He's struggling. This is difficult stuff. I'm engaged, betrothed to be married. We talked about that last week. Remember, it's legally binding. He's already married. They just didn't consummate their marriage through sexual intimacy. And now he's ready to divorce his girl. This is tough stuff. But I'll tell you something. When, when you come to the Bible, you're going to get what you see is what you get. You're going to get the facts. And facts are our friends, folks. This Bible is candid. It doesn't sweep the mess of our life under the rug. Thank God for that. It's not a bunch of platitudes or principles or ideas. It's real to life. These people were wrestling with God, with faith, with doubt, with heaven. But you know what I see is really beautiful about this passage? I see Joseph leaning in, and I see God engaging him. And I see movement in this story from genuine doubt to genuine faith. And so that's my encouragement this morning, that all of us can be like Joseph as God engages, as we engage, to move from genuine doubt to faith. And we're going to see the remarkable conclusion of that. There is such fruit in life. And so this morning, I want to share with you three movements that I discovered in this passage. Let's take a look. Movement number one, biblical faith embraces legitimate doubt. Please hang your hat on that. Sometimes we think that, that faith and doubt are supposed to be worlds apart. No. I think there is a great relationship between faith and doubt. Look at Matthew 28 sometime. Jesus is meeting with his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And what happens? There's a great meeting, he's ascending, and it still says, after the resurrection, some doubt it. Well, let's look at Joseph's doubt. Back to verses 18 and 19. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph. It was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. 
So her husband Joseph being a righteous man, and that's a key phrase in this passage, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, how beautiful a man of honor, decided to divorce her secretly. One of the things that's really cool about the ancient world is studying how they viewed things. Remember, we talked about uh, Mary Joseph living in Nazareth. Today, it's large, 60,000 people. Back then, maybe two to 500 people. Everybody knows your business. When it says that Joseph is a righteous man, the Hebrew word there for righteous is sadiq. And what that means is Joseph was a very religious, devout man. He kept the law, the law of Moses. He kept kosher. He lived a pure diet. He kept the Sabbath. And folks, that's not easy. He did everything he could, like Saul of Tarsus, to live blamelessly before God according to the Old Testament scripture. Why? He believed that honored God. That was the directive of scripture. And so he's living as a righteous man, and guess what happens? All his righteousness, his whole identity, in a culture of honor and shame, is flipped upside down. Potentially, Joseph is not the righteous man we thought he was. Why? His girl's pregnant before they came together. And friends, in a culture of honor and shame, that is just hugely disgraceful. In a community of two to 500, everybody knows your business. And guess what? You walk around town with your head down in guilt and shame. Now, think through the options Joseph had. And he had options just like you and I do, right? Option number one, to publicly divorce Mary. That was an option, guys. And by the way, that was a real option. If your heart was hard, if Joseph was a bitter man, if he looked at Mary as unfaithful, boy, he could have threw her out publicly. And boy, the rest is history. Option number two, thankfully, he didn't go that way. Private divorce. Private divorce is what Joseph said he's going to do. You know what that means? He still loved Mary. He wanted to honor Mary. But here's the deal, folks. If he went forward and married her, he would have admitted his guilt. And he couldn't do that. He wasn't guilty. He wasn't the father. Something other is going on here, miraculous other. And so he chooses to go that route. But then there's option three, and it's called the option of intervention, to marry his pregnant fiance. Now, we need to camp there just for a moment. For Joseph to say yes to this was incredibly difficult. It's going all in. Why? His identity, his honor, who he was as a man of God is tied to his righteousness, his sadiq. For him to admit that I'm now going to choose to marry would be saying to the community, because they didn't know what he did, he knew, right? He got it through an angel in a dream. Mary the same. So everybody looks at him as the guilty party. And folks, this is remarkable. But Joseph leaned in. And so when we come to the issue of doubt in life, what do we do? I want to encourage you. Engage your doubts regardless of the category. Why? God shows up and he wants to work with us. I received a letter, and this gal allowed me to share this with you this morning. She hit the wall in life and faith, and she engaged me as her pastor at the time 
This is from our previous ministry. She writes, Pastor, I am hoping that you can shed some light on what is conflicted in my mind. I know that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I believe that he died on the cross for for us. But here is my dilemma. This past week, my nephew died from brain cancer. He was a strong warrior for Christ. He brought many of our family out of the Christian closet, so to speak. I believe, yet I still doubt, that he is in heaven. Wait, of course he is in heaven. I have hope of seeing him again in that place. Then she writes, but what if? What if there is something, there is nothing beyond the grave? Your sermon on Sunday addressed it, but I still wrestle with the reality of heaven. What if we die and that's it? It is an embarrassment to feel this way, yet I am sure there are others who believe but encounter doubts. So I leave this in your capable hands to shed light on God's grace. Let me ask you a question. You get a letter like that from a friend, a loved one, a family member. How would you respond? Can I give you a few encouragements? Respond with appreciation and compassion. Thank you for sharing your heart. Thank you for leaning into your doubts. Why we all have doubts at certain seasons in our faith journey. What you're going through is real. And so you bring compassion and you bring understanding to the table. But you also bring the word of God. Your nephew is in Christ. Yes, of course he is in heaven. John 14. And give affirmation and insurance from the word of God and help the genuine doubt move to genuine faith. This gal is still fully in Christ, bearing much fruit. She leaned into her doubts. You know what's the alternative? To somehow retreat with the pain, suffering, challenges, and doubt in life. To not engage and not get answers and not work within the community and body of Christ and the counsel from the word of God. Folks, God wants us to engage our doubts. So, If you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this phrase down. Faith is a journey. That is the biblical narrative. It's not like you and I have instantaneous faith, uh, you know, immediately. Let me show you that. I mean, if if anyone uh, should have faith, it's the people who experience Jesus' miracles, his teaching. There were so many aha moments. But let me show you a passage from Mark chapter 9. A father brings a demon-possessed son from birth to Jesus. Can you imagine rearing a child like that in the ancient world? How difficult, how painful it was. You talk about special needs. This is special needs. And he's pleading with Jesus. Jesus, please have compassion on my son. How does Jesus respond? Let me show it to you. Jesus says in Mark 9, everything is possible to the one who believes. So he called the dad to faith. He called him to believe that God rewards those who believe in him and diligently seek him. And then notice how the father responds. Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. Folks, I would contend that that is a real part of our faith journey. I believe, help my unbelief. We sat as staff last week and I said, 
we were talking about this and, and faith and what it means. I said, on your faith meter from zero to 100, where is your faith today in Jesus Christ? In the historical tenets of the Christian faith. Are you 10, 20, 80, 90, 100? Have you ever thought through that? Do you really, really believe what the Bible teaches about God, Christ, the Spirit, salvation by grace through faith. And when the going gets tough, when a nephew dies of brain cancer, I'm still all in. I'm struggling, but I'm still all in. How's your faith meter this morning as you enter Christmas 2021? It's okay to doubt. God wants to take the genuine doubt and move you to genuine faith. That's what Joseph says. Movement number two. Let's keep going. Biblical faith evaluates the objective realities. And I love what God does here. We've seen this before. It's pretty remarkable. And so Chuck Colson, I hope you know that name. He's one of my heroes. I certainly have sat under his tutelage for years. Quite a remarkable man. Has written many books. One I really recommend on faith. He calls it the faith. But he says this, and I quote, the Christian faith is not an irrational leap. Examine objectively the claims of the Bible are rational propositions, well supported by reason and evidence. This is one of the great thinkers of modern times. He says you can bank on the Christian faith. You can think it through. It's not irrational. It's, irras it's rational. You know what? The Bible says that about faith. Let me show it to you. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. Look at the definition of faith. If you want really a definition of faith, there's a lot of examples of faith, but here's a definition of faith. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. For our ancestors, one, God's approval by it. Two words I want you to camp on. Faith is the reality. Faith is the proof. Yes, we believe by faith, but there's realities supporting our faith. There's evidences and proof to our faith. Just in this tiny text, I want to highlight four objective realities. This is going to go fast, so track with me. It's not in your notes, so you might want to write that down. Objective reality number one, what does God do for Joseph when he's doubting, when he's struggling? He sends a messenger in a dream. We've seen this in the Gospel of Luke. We've seen this in the book of Acts. Do you realize angels are real, created beings, according to Hebrews 1, who serve the saints? I've said this before, I'll say it again. I married an angel. But we're talking about different angels. We're talking about angelic beings, dudes that are big and have wings and powerful. Why? Because we see every time they show up, there's fear, there's awe. Look what happens. Matthew 120, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream. Give me the two names of angels that you know of from Scripture, just for a little bit of interaction here. Chris, can I pick on you? Gabriel, Gabriel all right. Yeah, we've seen him in, in uh, the narrative. Who else? There's another one. Michael, the archangel, right? I'll take on Michael. This angel of the Lord, guys, a little bit, you know, we just don't have clarity and then, of course, the biblical narrative is there was another angel. He was the bright morning star, and he got cast out of heaven because of his pride, his arrogance, wanted to usurp the throne of God. Angels are real, ministering spirits sent on our behalf to accomplish God's will. Second objective reality, 
God is fulfilling biblical prophecy. The prophecy is found here. Look at this, Matthew 1. Now all this took place, notice the key phrase, to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Folks, we're going back 700 years, 700 years to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and look what it says. See, the virgin will become pregnant, give birth to a son. They will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That's an identical quote to Isaiah 7, 14. Can I encourage you this morning? One of the great evidences of the faith, the Christian faith, is fulfilled prophecy. I'm going to tone it down a little bit. Conservatively, there are at least 100 fulfilled prophecies of Jesus. Conservatively. I won't go to allusions and other possible quotations. It jumps to about 300. 100 prophetic scriptures written from hundreds of years ago, five, six, seven hundred years ago, pointing to Jesus. Bethlehem of Judea, you're tiny, you're least, but out of you who will, will come a shepherd who will rule my people. Where was Jesus born? In the town of Bethlehem. You want to talk about tiny, you want to talk about no man's land, and yet God incarnate sends a baby to the town of Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, these beautiful truths, time and time again. Third objective reality Let's keep going here. <clears throat> God miraculously intervenes in human history. And I love this. Now, this is mystery. We talked about mystery last week. I hope you can live in mystery. Life is filled with mystery, and it is wonderful to realize God is God. He is seated on the throne, and we are not. Look at Matthew 120. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by who? Friends, hang your head on this. This is the third person of the Trinity. This is God, equal with the Son, equal with the Father. God the Holy Spirit mysteriously and miraculously impregnated a 15-year-old girl named Mary. Why did he do that? He had to do that to bring salvation. There had to be a pure seed. There had to be a righteous seed. Why? Because when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we inherit his righteousness. So Jesus, the pure, sinless son of God, uh, was born in a miraculous way, impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And then finally, God declares Jesus the savior of the world. And folks, please don't uh, take this lightly. Sometimes the Bible, we, we've read it time and time again, maybe year after year, decade after decade, and it just becomes commonplace. Do you realize the Lord, the angel, gave instruction as to what the name of this uh, uh, incarnated baby would be? So track with me. He married her, but did not know her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. In the ancient world, naming your child was a really big deal. Often you assigned your child's name to your family. There were connections. Often the name meant something. Why did the Lord said name him Jesus? Why was the angel so emphatic? You will call his name Jesus. The Old Testament equivalent to Jesus is Joshua, Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah, and it simply means Savior. Now, parents... You've gone through this. How many of you spent time enjoying the process of choosing the name for your children? It's kind of fun. So, all right, Mr. Elder, you guys are pregnant. 
Have you had the conversation yet on, on names? Yeah, do you come to any conclusions? You wanna? <laughs> no, not gonna do it. So I'll tell you a crazy story, and I'm sorry, but this goes back, Ellen and I have been married 32 years, and we had our first pregnancy, and, and I was thinking, you know, we found out it was a girl, and I was thinking, wow, let's name her Maui. I really like the name Maui. And there's a reason for that. We were traveling, and good chance that's where conception took place, you know. I knew Tyler would do that. I knew it. Did that hurt? And I was serious. I'm like, I think it's just cool. It'll commemorate Maui. Ellen looked at me. And Ellen's not a stern person. No. No stinking way. All right. So we wound up with Aaron Nicole Missile, which I'm good with. So yeah, I had that conversation. When it came time to name the boys, guess what? I lost two. So it's all on Ellen. She, she gets it done. But guys, never, never ever forget, God named the baby Jesus. Why? He declared Savior of the world. So why do I say this whole issue of objective faith is so important? Face hard, guys. There's times we hit the wall, and it's difficult. Let me show you it. If you would think, wow, anybody who would get faith would be the apostles, right? Look at Luke 17, 5 through 6. The apostles said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. And then what did Jesus say? Don't miss this. We've talked about this in the past. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. There is a great principle to learn in the faith journey. It's not the size of our faith. You know how small a mustard seed is? It's tiny. Think about tiny faith. You know what's most important in the faith journey? The object of our faith, Jesus Christ. That's why Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despite the shame, now is seated at the right hand of the Father. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Put your eyes on the object of your faith. Not your tiny faith or your big faith that somehow this is predicated upon my great faith. It's not, folks. It's predicated upon Jesus, the faithful one. Would you agree? Amen. I met with a dear friend that I've known for 40 years. John and I came to faith in Christ right around the same time. He lost his wife to cancer a few years back. A dear friend of mine, Danielle. A couple of his kids were struggling with life and faith. Pretty difficult stuff. He'd been an elder in our home church for 25 years, and he's, he's been through a lot. And I just looked at him. We were having coffee last time we were in town around Thanksgiving. I said, John, how you doing? And he looked at me so soberly, and it's been hard. There's, there's no doubt in my mind it's been a very hard journey for him. He says, Keith, where am I going to go? Who has the words of eternal life? He quoted John chapter 6. He quoted Peter. Here's the question in life and faith. When you and I hit the wall... When we come up against stuff that just seems impossible and overwhelming, the question I would encourage you always to ask, okay, what are my alternatives? Where am I going to go? If Jesus is in front and center, if I can't fix my eyes on him, the author and finisher of my faith, what are my other options? I promise you this because I've thought through it. There's no good options. Let's stay the course with Jesus. The object of our faith, he's strong. Now, finally, Biblical faith produces God-honoring action. 
If you know the book of James, in fact, I think the women's group is studying James right now. Chapter 2, verses 14 and on, there's this whole thing about faith in action. Let me see your fruit. Real faith is demonstrated in lifestyle. It's not a faith by works. It's a faith that works. Huge distinction. Where do I get this from? Look at verses 24 and 25. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he put, and he named him Jesus. Folks, I believe this with all my heart. Joseph put everything on the line, everything. His name, his honor, his sadiq, everything he was reared in, he gave up for the cause of Christ. Count me in, I'll marry her. Notice how detailed Matthew is. No sexual relationship until the birth took place. We're not going to confuse the narrative. There's such clarity. This is a miraculous birth. This is the incarnation of God through the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And so how do we relate to this uh, in closing? Can I just ask a few questions? We went through seven categories of doubt. And folks, it's not exhaustive, but I do think it's helpful. Do you see yourself in those categories? You know what I think Joseph's dilemma was? I think he was disappointed with God a little bit. God, this, this is big. This is too much. But how do you think Joseph felt towards Mary? It broke his heart. It created real, real doubt. No doubt in my mind. Do you see yourself in any of those categories? And the encouragement today is to be like Joseph, to be like Lee Strobel and lean into your doubt and God will respond as he already has. If you want to grow in your faith, can I encourage things? Two things. One, Lee Strobel wrote this book and it is a powerful book, folks, powerful book. Case for Faith has sold two million copies. Unprecedented in Christian literature. Unprecedented. If you're not a reader, get the movie, A Case for Christ. And if you want to encourage someone in their faith journey, give these as gifts this Christmas season. That movie is absolutely powerful, absolutely powerful. Third thing I want to encourage you, Romans 10, 17. And this is foundational because this is what the angel did with Joseph. He took him to the Bible. He took him back 700 years. As a Sadiq, Joseph knew the Old Testament scriptures. He knew Isaiah, the messianic prophet. He took him back. Why? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing. Hearing the message of who? It's Christ. The Bible speaks of Christ. It is a Christocentric message. Everything from Genesis to Revelation speaks of Jesus Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And as always, dear congregation, our elders, our staff, our life group leaders, we want to help you engage the faith journey. Why? Because we believe faith is demonstrated in lifestyle. We want you to bear fruit. We want you to see the joy of living faithfully. So as our worship team comes forward, let me close with a final story. As you know, I'm a fan of Lee Strobel. I had no idea who I was sitting under 40 years ago. Lee wasn't even on a journey, hadn't written one book. You know what's happened today in Lee's life? He's written over 50 
books. He has a series out called A Case For, A Case for Christ, A Case for Faith, A Case for Miracles, A Case for Grace, A Case for Christmas, and the list goes on and on. Why do I say that? He went from an atheist antagonist to what? Someone who had genuine faith in Christ as influencing people all across the globe. Isn't it remarkable that an individual who was an atheist becomes a Christian, that Hollywood would take his story and make it into a movie? 2017, a case for faith. And so here's the encouragement for each and every one of us this morning. Is our faith being lived out in a very practical way? Do you see the fruit of your faith today? And if there's doubt, can you move from genuine doubt to genuine faith? Can you trust the objective realities of Scripture? As we go into 2022, we have high hopes at Westwind to, to encourage you for self-feeding, that you'll grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and you'll feel confident to stand on the word of God. And so stand with me, we'll pray, we'll sing, we'll close our time in worship. Father, what a joy to see you do a work in Joseph's life, in Mary's life, to bring about fulfilled prophecy, to bring about your plan, Lord, for the ages, redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so this Christmas, Christmas 2021, we stand in awe. Thank you, Jesus, for your righteousness. It's not ours. It wasn't Joseph's. It's your righteousness at Calvary that purchases our salvation. Thank you for the gift of faith that we can believe even today. And Lord, in our doubt, we pray, help us believe. And Father, I ask in Jesus' name this morning that if those who are just really doubting, really just struggling to say yes to all that you've done, Father, through Jesus Christ, your son, pray that your spirit would work a miracle even today. We worship you, Lord. We celebrate you. We celebrate that without faith, it's impossible to please God. He who comes to God must believe that he is and rewards those who diligently seek him. Give us that faith, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.